Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, <clears throat> you'll remember that last week we're going to, we finished up chapter 28. And, uh, you know, we looked at two very important areas for us as a church and certainly also as, as Christians. We looked at dealing with the poor and how that it needs to be part of, of our balance, not only of our church here and what we try to do, uh, but also in our Christian lives as we try to minister to people. And then the second thing we looked at <clears throat> was our stand uh, on uh, the Word of God. And the verse there that we talked about and closed out with was evil men, uh, when evil men rise, uh, men hide. You know, and I gave you a chapter 23 in the book of Jeremiah. I think it's probably one of the most powerful chapters anywhere in all the Bible on, on you know, where we're at today that helps define the time that we, we live in. And uh, it's a thing where, you know, Jeremiah looked around in his own nation, his own country, and he saw immediately what the problem was. He saw that the leaders of Israel, who are called pastors in the passage there, uh, were not doing what's right with, with the Word of God with their people. And, you know, uh, as you look at that, he, he prophetically hit it right on the button with where we are at today. And, of course, we know, or we should know, that... Uh, you know, the, the, everything in the Old Testament will have a prophetic application to it and the things in the Old Testament, you're told that in the Corinthians, the things that happened to them are in samples and examples to us and it's just things that you learn from. You know, I cannot, I cannot uh, say strong enough the power of the pulpit, the preaching of, of the Word of God. You know, the pastor stands in the pulpit and he declares the truth of God. And if every pastor across this country, or the world for that matter, would just take their stand on the Word of God and preach the truth as it needs to be preached, it would, it would, it would be the greatest change that this country could ever have. And of course, I know that that's not going to happen, but it's so true in our own history. There was a time back in the 1300s when Czechoslovakia, not even a nation anymore, but the whole nation was turned to God through the preaching of a man by the name of John Huss. And he preached the truth of the Word of God, and the whole nation came to him. You know, during the Reformation, it was Martin Luther in Germany who the whole country followed Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was a great preacher. And uh, it, it's incredible what he accomplished. You know, and even in England, when you go back and you look at the uh, the history of England, which I think is one of the most fascinating things to, to watch the development that. But, you know, you had Henry VIII that broke with the Roman Catholic Church and, uh, you know, and established the Anglican Church, Church of England. And then after him, you had Bloody Mary, uh, Mary Tudor. She came on and she tried to bring it back to Roman Catholicism and persecuted all the Christians. And then you had... Then you had Elizabeth come on the throne who brought it back and then, of course, James I uh, who established it and you saw through those guys the whole nation again come back to, to God. You know, and later on in our own country, and we talked about this several, several months ago, our own founding fathers, how that they understood by what they had experienced in Europe that uh, this country, if it was ever going to be successful, had to be founded on the preaching of the Word of God. You know, I remember a time that uh, um, that about 10 or 15 years after the founding of our country, the, uh, the, the, the leaders, the Senate and the Congress had really fallen into 
to bickering and, and disarray, and they were getting anything done. And uh, Ben Franklin at that point in time was a very, very old guy, and he was very ill. He wasn't, didn't live much longer. He showed up one day, and he told these people that they had forgotten why God had, had, had done for them. And so they suspended Congress and the Senate, and for the next five days, instead of having legislation, they brought in preachers that preached to them and got them back on track. It's incredible. And that power, you know, is, is an incredible power. Billy Sunday, back in the 20s, single-handedly through his preaching, brought in prohibition, which was an end to alcohol in this country that lasted, you know, for over a decade before it was repealed. The power of God's Word being preached from the pulpits will change not only men's hearts, but it will change the course of nations. And, of course, the pulpit today in America has lost track of that. Uh, there's no more preaching today. America has not seen a great revival in a biblical sense for almost 50, 60 years. And there will be no more. And, uh, you know, it's an incredible thing, you know, as you, as you look and as you see what, what's going on and how that America has lost all understanding of what, uh, from a Bible standpoint, pastors, anyhow, churches, what they should be preaching and what they should be doing. We've went from a militant spiritual army that was a take it stand for the Lord to a fitness center, to a Starbucks and a community center, you know, with a restaurant in it. We've lost the purpose of the church and certainly lost the purpose of the pulpit. You know, years ago I read a book, and I, for the life of me, I don't have the book anymore, and I can't remember, but it was, a, it was written by an old English guy, and it was written probably in the 1800s. <clears throat> and I don't remember the book per se, but there was one line in it that I never forgot, and it, it changed how I looked at things. And he said that the job of every Christian, no matter what period of time that he lives in, the job of every Christian is to find out what the prevailing spirit is in the age that he's living, and then with everything he has from God, go against that spirit. And that was one of the most incredible things that, that I ever read. And it, uh, you know, it, uh, and to, and, 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 and we talked about last week, you know, we, the prevailing spirit today, without a doubt, is to take the word of God. Jeremiah said it last week in verse 30, chapter 23, that the pastors stole the word of God from their people. You know, I, I've told you many times how that the 20th century uh, was an incredible century for many, many, many different reasons. You know, I think, and, and maybe it's just because that I've lived in it, and, 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 but to me, it's one of the most incredible time periods to be alive, to watch how God has worked toward the second coming of Christ. We saw early on, at the end of the 1800s and then moving into the 1900s, we saw the Zionist movement, how that God began to circulate across the world, how to bring the nation of Israel back to the land. It took of 50, 60 years to get it there, but he began to move all the way back then. We saw World War I, and we saw how that the, how that the, that World War I really changed everything in Europe, and it, it, it paved the way for the Jew uh, later on to go back, broke all the monarchies except England, and that's an incredible aspect to see. And then World War II, at the end of World War II and through the Holocaust and all those things that the Jews went through, <clears throat> you know, we saw that on May the 14th of 1948, after 2,400 years, 2,400 years without the Jews ever having a homeland, 
1948, May the 14th, they became a nation. And at that point in time, everything changed. Nobody saw it. Nobody paid attention to it. I'm sure that the World Series was more important than the Super Bowl. I don't know if they had Super Bowls back then, but everything that was going on in the world, everybody was watching, and everybody, for the most part, missed the greatest single event in the 20th century, the fulfillment of Israel becoming a nation again. And then from that point on, you know, Matthew chapter 24, the great parable of the fig tree, how that everything is moving toward those lines. So that was an incredible part of the century. Many people see that, but not most people don't see that it's also true in Christianity of God keeping us the Word of God in these last days. You know, um, most Christians either don't know anything about their history, or if they did, they forget it very quickly. It's not something that they dwell on. We think that churches today like this are the churches that you go to. You think that they... You know, we get the idea that they've just been around forever. We just take for granted that it's always been here. And, of course, that's certainly not true. You'll find in the 1800s, moving up to the 1900s, that there was only three main groups of Baptists, only three. And uh, none of them were any good. You had the Southern Baptist Convention, and they were totally an apostate. You had the GRB, they are totally an apostate, and you had the American Baptists that are way out in left field. There's an American Baptist down in Florida. When you walk in, the guy's got a statue of Buddha, Confucius, and Jesus Christ, and you can take your pick who you want to pray to. There was no independent Baptist, and, and people don't even know this. They, they're so deluded from their own history. There, there was no independent Baptist. There was no, there was no Bible churches. There was just the Southern Baptist Convention, which was the largest, and they pretty much ruled the roost. Uh, You had the GRB, which was smaller, and then the American Baptists that are smaller still. And those three are still a part of that. Uh, Lauren uh, and his wife, uh, Barb, um, they came out of a GRB church up there in uh, um, Iowa, wherever they're at, Illinois. And it's it's a thing where they're all still around. The Charismatics weren't even thought of at that point in time. Charismatics get the idea, you know, that when you go back that there's charismatic. No, no, no. <laughs> At the turn of the century, there were no charismatics. They hadn't been hatched yet. They, 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 they're nowhere to be found. You couldn't, if you got up that morning and said, I'm going to go find a charismatic church, you'd have looked for the rest of your life. If you'd have said, well, I'm going to an independent Baptist church, you'd have looked for the rest of your life. They weren't there. That century, the 20th century, was such an incredible century, not only for the nation of Israel, but God knew as the nation of Israel and all was happening that there was going to be a great attack on on his word. And boy, I'll tell you what, it was so true. And all three of these were totally uh, in apostasy. The Southern Baptist Convention, the Southern Baptist Churches, which was the biggest, their main seminary was in Louisville, Kentucky. By the time the 1920s, they're teaching evolution. They're teaching that the Bible of Adam and Eve and Noah's flood were fables. They, the reason why the Southern Baptist Church is the mess it's in today is because generation after generation were trained in that mindset. And it's an incredible thing. And uh, all three groups were totally in apostasy. And the last half of the 20th century going into the 21st century, if you're paying attention, you'll see that God cared about you. He cared about me. 
God wanted to have a legacy as his word, and he knew that in the early parts of the 1900s, you know, uh, that it just simply wasn't there, other than the hundreds of thousands of people who were out there in little pockets, the remnant. And, uh, you know, it's you have what you have today because in the 1900s and early uh, this century, the 21st century, God raised up two men and made sure that you, you had a Bible. You know, last week we went to see the movie Midway. And, you know, I've tried to prepare you before that. I like movies like that, and I wasn't sure about this one. They made another one back in the 70s that was really clo- really right on the money of the way it happened. So many of the movies, they try to remake the areas of history. They got to put a love story in it, you know, like Pearl Harbor, the second one, and all this stuff. And it gets just totally out of line. But they got to do that so people will come. Because if you just teach the facts of history, it's a flop. You know why? Because nobody wants to know anything about history. That's not exciting to most people. I mean, and I get that. And, uh, you know, so I went, you know, wanting to see it. But I got to tell you, it's probably the best movie that I've ever seen uh, on the historical facts of the rendition. They covered everything from Pearl Harbor to, you know, the, uh, uh, the Doolittle Raid on Tokyo, right up to the Battle of Coral Sea and then right into the Midway Battle. And, you know, and to me, it was, it's, I need things like that because I never want to forget. And I remember coming out of the movie and some of the kids, they weren't our kids, but some of the other kids that were there with their parents, they didn't like the movie. And, and I get that. I really do. I mean, compared to Freddy Krueger and, uh, you know, uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it was pretty lame. And I'm sitting there listening to these kids talk to their mom and dad liked it. And the kids said, nah, I didn't like it. Nah, it was too boring. It was too... And I thought to myself, that is so true of our generation today. And I, I, I wasn't going to do this. I wanted to walk up and say something to them nicely, you know, I mean, in a very kind way. And I guess I can say things nice and kindly. And I was going to walk up. <laughs> but I thought to myself, you know what? That is so typical of our generation. The only reason that those kids are not speaking Japanese today because of Midway. It was the turning point. That they don't get it. And the reason you have a King James Bible today, you don't get it. And the reason why you're not sitting here with an NIV or you have no idea about the King James Bible is somebody paid a price for you to have it today. And the problem I have with churches One, two problems in particular. One, you don't know the price that was paid. And even if you do, you yourself are not willing to pay it to make sure somebody else gets it down the line. And the reason you have a King James Bible today is only because of God in that time period. Just like he raised the men up in the Belfort Declaration and all that to get Israel, God raised up two men. One of them was J. Frank Norris. J. Frank Norris was called, very rightly so, the Texas Tornado. No true words were ever spoken. He started in the Southern Baptist Convention. He was their fair-haired boy because he could preach really well. But when he got into the Louisville Seminary, he started to see everything, and he was a Bible believer. He started to see this stuff, and I won't tell you what. <clears throat> they hated him in the Southern Baptist Convention. They did everything to do short of killing him to get him out and to stop him, and they could not stop him. And he took his stand. And when J. Frank Norris left the Southern Baptist Convention in the 40s, he pulled out of the Southern Baptist Convention all the great preachers that 
you probably never met because they're all dead, but you probably would know their names. And they are the ones, when he came out of the Southern Baptist, they came out because of a King James 1611 authorized version. And they started with Norris, what was called the World Fellowship. And Norris was a character. Well, I'm not kidding you. If you ever want to read the greatest book on him, the greatest book, I think, is a guy by the name of Lewis Emerson, who was an associate of his, who wrote the title of it is The J. Frank Norris that I have known for only 34 years. Probably one of the greatest book on him that you'll ever find. But he was something else. I mean, he was not your shake his hand going out the door with the pastor. You felt like it just picked up a dead fish. He was something else. He wasn't called a Texas tornado for nothing. He took in a Sunday morning boy and the corruption in Texas and all those places and around. He put out names, places, and telephone numbers, man. One time a guy called him up and said, I'm going to come over and kill you, uh, you blankety-blank, blankety-blank, and I'm coming to your church and I'm going to kill you. J. Frank Norris said, I'll be here till 4 o'clock. Guy walked into the church, came into his office, pulled out a gun. J. Frank Norris outdrew him and shot him right in his office. From that point on, he was called the pistol-packing preacher. He's something else. Fearless. And of course, he, he starts what we know as the King James Bible being the Word of God. He starts that preservation for us. He lives from 19, 1877 when he was born. He died in 1952. But from 1920 to 1947, he, he did what God called him to do. And of course, uh, he he develops from him, becomes a split between him and, you know, Beecham Vick, who was his associate. And then we got what we known as the Baptist Bible Fellowship today. And then the independent movement was born right there. Back in the 60s and the 70s, all the great Baptist churches that were uh, around this country were all men under J. Frank Norris's. And they all believed the King James Bible starting out. I came from one of those churches, Canton Baptist Temple, my pastor there, Dr. Harold Henniger, who's home with the Lord now, he was one of J. Frank Norris's boys, as were many of those old guys. They all started out believing the King James Bible, and as time went on, they all fell from it and rejected it and wound up going after the, all the new translation. almost every one of them. Harold Henniger certainly did. At about that time, God knew that we needed to have a Bible, so he raised up a second man. And this man was Dr. Peter S. Ruckman. And, of course, uh, he, he, uh, he was born in 1921, and he died several years ago in 2016. Where J. Frank Norris was called Texas Tornado, Pete Ruckman was called God Junkyard Dog. And, boy, he was. And where Norris got his education and his eyes opened at the Louisville Seminary, Ruckman got his opened at Bob Jones University. And he was a thorn in their flesh. I mean, uh, I would say this, and I don't, I'll be the first to tell you, I don't agree with everything that either one of them did. But I'll tell you this, when God needed a nuclear power sledgehammer to break the, the, the bust of thing down and get you the Bible, he found it in those two guys. To my way of thinking, Dr. Ruckman was the greatest mind on the English Bible probably in the 20th century. I mean, that's my own personal opinion. And, uh, I mean, it's a face where, you know, like it or not, you know, you have a King James Bible because God brought it through some men who were willing to take a stand when everybody else was hiding. And it's a thing where, you know, just like the Battle of Midway was the turning point that we don't speak Japanese today, 
Those two guys are the reason that you have the Word of God. And uh, if it wasn't for them, God only knows where we would be. You know, we always think that the man God uses has to have angel wings on him and a halo around him. That just simply is not true. And, of course, the men in the Bible, you take Moses. He killed a man and hit him in the sand. I mean, uh, it, it just doesn't go that way. But God will reach down and get what he needs out of a man who loves him and loves the book, and God will use him many times in spite of himself. Now, boy, I'll tell you what. Uh, both places down through history, it's because we have what we have. And it, it goes back to the fact that uh, we need to be thankful and realize that and not take for granted the book that God has given us. And when evil men rise, don't hide. You take your stand for it. Well, today, yes, we're going to move into chapter 29. And uh, just three chapters left to go. And uh, we should be out of this book safely in four or five years and move right on down the line. <clears throat> But I, I want to focus on, and this is the problem with Proverbs. You know, <clears throat> I, I taught this years and years and years ago. Some of you may remember. I talked it on the Sunday school class on Sunday morning. And I based, and this shows you the difference between back then and now. I, I would teach it in gar, large sections at a time, maybe eight or nine verses, you know, and just come down through them, maybe eight or nine or ten. <clears throat> Can't do that anymore. I mean, you start coming through this book, and boy, I'll tell you what, there's just verses that pop out that scream to be preached, and this is one of them today. So we're going to look at 29.1, and it simply says, He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Now let me say this, and we'll get this out of the way here so we can get into it for us. Doctrinally, all this deals obviously with the tribulation period. Uh, the Antichrist and his crowd hardening themselves during the tribulation, just like Pharaoh did back in the Old Testament, you know. And suddenly the destruction will be the second coming of Christ. Inspirationally, inspirationally, it'll be a picture of the world system that is totally against God and, and, uh, and unsaved people and saved people too who will become part of it and will be cut off suddenly. Let's pray. Kelly, back there, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on my preaching this morning? Now, this message will be a fairly simple one today. <clears throat> it won't be too complicated. It's only really about one concept, and we'll develop that concept in a number of different angles, but it's simply this. Man has a sin problem, and that sin problem is in his heart, and God is, and only God has the remedy for that problem. Now, I, you know, the, I love how the Bible will always interpret itself, and it, it shows you down here that he's talking about a hardness of the neck. He's actually... Connecting that and showing you that that's talking about a hardness of a man's heart. 
We saw it in the last chapter, 28.4, a man who will harden his heart. We saw it in 28.26, a man that trusteth in his own heart instead of the things of God. Proverbs 19, we preached on this a number of months ago. Verse 21, saying that there are many devices in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. Man will reject God's remedy and try to solve his issues in life without God or his word. And, of course, that, will, that just never happen. It's illustrated actually in the whole book of Ecclesiastes where he goes through, what, 29, 30 different ologies that man comes up with to get around God, and none of them fail. Uh, none, they all fail. And in the Bible, the neck will always be associated with man's will. And uh, it will be based on his heart attitude. And we've talked about attitude versus action. A man's attitude will be his, his uh, love for God or not his love for God. It will be his will over God's will. And the neck will be either uh, given over to God's will or stiffened. And that will produce the action either for God or against God. You know, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 27, we're told that uh, God's people are rebellious. And it says that they have stiffened their neck to God's will. The neck in the Bible will always be a picture of man's will. In Psalms and Proverbs, it talks about chains of gold about our, our neck. And that's a picture of the blessings of God when we uh, bow our neck and follow God's will instead of our own. Song of Solomon chapter 4, verse 4, it says that the neck is like the Tower of David. That's a picture of where a Christian should be, strengthened with the Word of God, David's relationship with the Word of God. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 18, at the death of Eli. Eli, you know, is a rebellious priest who produced rebellious sons. You know the story there in 1 Samuel 3 with, with uh, Samuel. And he hears that the ark of God is coming, and he falls off, in the, falls off the chair that he's sitting on or the stool. The Bible says, you might guess it, he broke his neck. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 29, what a great principle for all of us. It says, and talking about the prophets to Israel, and testifieth against them that thou mightest bring them again unto thy law. Yet they dealt proudly and hearkened not unto thy commandments, but sinned against thy judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them, and withdrew the shoulder and hardened their neck and would not hear. And yet many years dost thou forbear them and testifieth against them by thy spirit and thy prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore gavest thou them into the land of the people of the lands. And boy, if that isn't a picture of us today. For over a thousand years, God sent the prophets to them. He says down there in verse 30, Yet many years did you forbear them. For over, over a thousand years, from Judges to Second Chronicles, God kept sending them men and prophets and and judges to get them back right with God. Finally, in God, finally, God said in 606 B.C., that's enough. I'm done. There is no more remedy for the nation of Israel. You see it in the book of Jeremiah over and over and over again, how often God reproved them. And it came to a point that God could not deal with them anymore. And they had hardened their heart and stiffened their neck so much that God said, there's no remedy for this people. And yet, you know, you find that throughout the Bible. I mean, it's often reproved. God gave Judas three and a half years to get it right. He gave Pharaoh seven years to get it right. 
He gave Zedekiah 11 years, and back in Genesis, before the flood, he gave those people 120 years. And nothing. And there comes a point for them that there's no remedy. And I'm going to tell you something. God will give you time. I must tell you this, that if you get more than one uh, offering of salvation, that's grace. It's grace that God give it to you, but you get the idea in America because we have so much that God's obligated to give it to you every day. Honestly, he's just obligated to give it to you one time. If he gave you the gospel one time and you rejected it and you died 20 minutes later, that's all God had to do. It's on you. And you need to know that he'll, he'll, he'll give us often reproved, but you also need to know for a man there will come a time when there's no more remedy for a man's problem. Bible says in, in, in Romans chapter 1 verse 28 that God's turned him over to a reprobate mind. And at that point, there's nothing God can do. He tells us in 1 Timothy 4, 2 that, that some people will sear their conscience with a hot iron. And when you get to that point in your life, you deceive yourself so much, there's no remedy for it anymore. And now the word of God's God's remedy is of none effect, Mark 7, 13. And, uh, you know, you go on and you break your neck. Now, there's some great pictures of this in the Old Testament that I want to show you how this works. In the Old Testament under the law, Exodus chapter 34, verse 20, the firstling of an ass. Now, keep in mind, an ass is a picture of an unsaved man. It's a picture of the nation of Israel in their rebellion, but it's also a picture of an unsaved man. And the firstlings of an ass. In the law, here it is. I mean, the Old New Testament salvation in type right back here. The firstlings of an ass had to be redeemed with a lamb. That is a picture of every unsaved man and woman in this building or under the sound of my voice or wherever needs to be redeemed with a lamb. Now that ass, as I said, is a picture of an unsaved man that needs redeemed by a lamb. And in the Old Testament law, 3420, if you don't redeem the ass with a lamb, you know what you got to do? You got to break its neck. Neck's always a picture of the will. And our verse says that he is often, he that is often reproved, harden his neck. That's unsaved or saved people. Our verse is clearly saying you reject God over and over again, and there will come a time that you can't get back to him. You have pushed yourself so far away, and it has nothing to do with God's grace or not willing to save you. It's that you have deceived yourself so much. You have sandbagged your position against God with so much for so long that he can't get through. You reject God over and over again, and there'll come a time when you can't get it there. You've stiffened your neck to the will of God. And of course, you know, I, I need to define this for so many of God's people, because uh, this is a very confusing point today. The will of God versus the plan of God. How many times I've heard somebody get up, some pastor, some Christian, and say, you know, well, I think the will of God for my life is to be a missionary. The will of God for my life is to do this, or the will of God for my life is for this or for that. And I understand that, and I, I you know, I, I just mark it mentally in my own mind. Uh, to me, I get, I'm, I'm probably too exact when it comes to the Bible. But there is a definite difference between the will of God and the plan of God in your life. Now, I don't know what God's got for each of you as far as God's plan for you. Some of you, it's becoming very obvious to seeing as you grow and all that. But honestly, you know, I, I, I can't stand up here and tell you what God's plan is for your life. God will reveal that to you in time. But God's plan for everybody here may be different. 
But God's will for everybody will be the same. And God's will is defined in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, uh, and that is that you be more like the Lord Jesus Christ every day of your life. That's God's will for your life. God's plan for your life is what God's going to do in the calling, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, that he's called you to do. But that's so much like God's people. We try to do something for God before we are something for God. And that's why we fail, and that's why so many things never get done. You'll only realize the plan of God in your life as you understand and realize and fulfill the will of God in your life. Becoming more like Christ and the plan of God will be right there, clear in front of you, and you'll never, never, never get off track. And there will come a time when you can't get back to him. And it's because we deceive ourselves. And the world, know this, Billy, the world right now, the world right now, as we speak, whatever's going on in your mind about this, the world right now is preparing the shackles to hold you to this old world for the rest of your life. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12 says that a three-fold cold is not easily broken. And that is so true. And you take a little piece of thread like you sew with, you know, and you can wrap each end around your finger and just, just pop that thing. You take that thing and wrap it around twice and you can break it. A little more effort. You take it around and put around your fingers and, and three times you might be able to break it, but a little more effort. You take that same little thread, wrap it around your fingers a thousand, hundred times, and you'll die trying to break it. And that thread wrapped around your fingers is a picture of just one more sin in your life that you keep adding and adding and adding and adding, and pretty soon that three-fold cold cord is impossible to break. Sin will never leave a man any better than it finds him. Light rejected becomes lightning. And we deceive ourselves. Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21, it says this, And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. This guy's got more than he knows what to do with. And the Bible says that he he brought forth plentifully. I mean, he's got everything he could ever want. And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And and then there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much good laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Boy, if that isn't the world system right there. The guy gets everything he wants. He can buy whatever he wants. He, has, he wants for nothing. And you know what? It isn't enough. He got to build bar barns so he can have more because one of the great things you better learn that godliness with contentment is great gain because the more you have, the more you want. And it gets to the place where you deceive yourself like this guy right here. And now he's looking around there and he's saying, wow, look at all that I got. I got everything I could ever want. I want more. So what am I going to do? Hmm, I'll build bigger barns. I'll build better ones. And I'll come to the place where I just walk in there and, and have all this stuff. You know what the pharaohs used to do? They used to have a treasure room. And a treasure room was probably 10 times bigger than this this whole. They had all kinds of gold, treasure, ivory, everything. And it was locked under guards and nobody could get it. The king would go down there and just walk through his treasure room and just look at all he had. 
Boy, God's people do the same thing. And this young guy here, I like this. If you haven't picked it up yet, five times, I will. I will. I will. I'll do it. But God said unto him, verse 20, Thou fool! This night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be? <laughs> that is good, isn't it? I get to tell you, when those pharaohs walked out of that gold treasure room and went up and had a heart attack and walked into the lake of fire, all that stuff was no nothing for him. I told you the story one time of a guy that had a motorcycle. He loved the motorcycle. He rode everywhere. And when he died, they buried him on his motorcycle. They strapped him on it, put him on a trailer, drove him around town for one last ride, dug a big hole, and buried him down in there on his bike. Let me tell you something. You think in hell that that bike meant anything to him now? I guarantee you it didn't. He says, I will say to my soul, I'm going to tell God what I'm going to do. I got a lot. I want more. I don't have time for God. I don't want anything to do with God. Look at my barns. I don't need God, man. My garage is full. My house is filled. I got everything I could ever want. Thou fool! This night, thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? And so he that layeth up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. Oh, wow, what a great passage that is. And that is so true of where we're at. And I'm telling you something, that's not only true of saved, lost people, that's true of saved people. And suddenly, what you think you got at all, suddenly, what you think everything is going your way and you could got everything you want, now you want more, suddenly you get a doctor's report. Suddenly, you get a head-on collision. Suddenly, you get drunk in your little party someplace and run off the road and hit a tree. Suddenly, destruction comes. And for the lost, it's hell. Eternal separation from the God. For the saved, it's losing everything that God had for you. I know you can't lose your soul, but my God, the things that you can lose. You see, we've deceived ourselves. You think you can get this, get along in life without God's remedy. And some of you rotten, dirty Christians, you took God's remedy and then you just went back and did their own thing after you got the remedy. You'll make every effort, you'll make every excuse to get around your issues and the only cure for anything we've got is God's remedy of God's word. Hey, I've witnessed the World War II vets, Vietnam vets, Korean vets, and I've tried to tell them about the Lord and try to tell them how they need to get saved, about hell. I was telling an old Marine Corps vet one time, you've been in World War II, fought on Guadalcanal. I mean, and I'll be honest with you, I know that there's no hell on earth, but if you want anything as close as hell on earth, it's, 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 it's war. And I started to tell him about the Lord and tell him about hell, and he stopped me. He said, young man, he said, I don't ever have to worry about going to hell. 
And I said, well, what do you mean about that? Are you saved? And he said, no, no, no. He says, I was in the Marine Corps and I was on Guadalcanal and it was the most horrendous time. He says, and then I was in Tarawa and wound up on Iwo Jima or Okinawa, one of those places. And I want to tell you something. They were absolute hell holes. And he said, I, 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 I paid my time in hell and I, I never have to worry. I can do whatever I want to do in life. And I can, I, I know I'm going to heaven because I, I was, I went through hell on this earth. You know, there's a little saying those guys have. And when I get to heaven, to St. Peter, I will tell another Marine reporting, sir, I've served my time in hell. You know what? You don't serve time in hell on this earth. I know war can be hell, but I'm telling you, you have no idea what hell is really like till you wind up there in the lake of fire. Audie Murphy was a great soldier in World War II, the most decorated soldier in World War II. He's an incredible individual. He was my hero growing up and still is in a lot of ways. One of the most courageous men you ever met. Won every medal his army, his country had by the time he was eight, 19 years old. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And after he got out of the army, he came back and made some movies in Hollywood. And he actually made one about his time. You ought to, ought to watch it sometime. It's pretty accurate. And the name of the movie was To Hell and Back. The problem, Mr. Murphy, is you don't go to hell and you're back. You stay there. And I've witnessed to him, and I've tried to tell him, hey, look, man, you need to get saved. No, 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 I'm telling you, man, I've served my time in hell. I've witnessed to evolutionists and scientists, you know, I, who reject God, of, you know, and for, the, for the foolishness of, of, of evolution and reject God as creator. And, oh, I, I, I've talked with them, and I've heard them give out their, you know, their, their steady state theory, their counter theory, their nebulous theory, the Big Bang theory. You know, I mean, it's incredible what they go through. I told him one time, he said, well, he says, you know, I can't believe in God because I got to believe in something that's scientific. Well, hey, I got news for you. There's nothing more, sci- I gave you Thursday night. There ain't nothing more scientific than the Bible. You want to put science to it. You kidding me? We talked about it Thursday night. And he says, and I, I hold to the, I said, well, what theory do you hold to? And he said, well, I hold to the Big Bang Theory. And I said, well, I do too. He says, you do? And I said, Yeah. I said, we just have one little difference. He said, I said, you think it started with a big bang. I'm telling you right now, it's going to end with one. And you'll be in a lake of fire. Don't even move them. I've witnessed to the cults, all of them, saved and lost. You got saved cults and lost cults. You know that. People who have absolutely no care for the truth or the facts or the history of the word of God. Couldn't rightly divide the word of truth that depended on it. And they rejected every clear teaching of the word of God that is clearly laid out in rightly dividing it. You ain't going to get anywhere with them. You never will. And I've talked to your garden variety centers, you know. Just good old boys who live like hell and run with the devil and his crowd, you know, and do their own thing. I mean, they'll laugh, they'll mock, they'll make fun of God, they'll use God's name in vain, you know. And they're just good old boys. You see them down at Quick Trip down here, you know. Got out in the country, you see them down at Casey's. You see them down here in the little farmer's places, you know, and they're always got the chaw on their jaw, you know, and the bib overalls all. And I've talked to them, and I've heard all the standing excuses. Well, there's too many hypocrites in the church. I'm not going to church. Well, that's true. That's true. There are a lot of hypocrites in the church. I get that. And uh, you're one of them, but not wanting to go to church, but that's okay. Well, you know, one tell me this. Well, you know, I don't need to go to church to watch worship God. I go out there fishing on Sunday morning and I can worship God. I can do it in a deer stand. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. And about that time, some hunter down there is going to take a shot of deer and miss it. Not three or out six is going to come up through those trees and put you right out of that deer stand. 
I've heard them all. I heard one guy say one time, hell, let me tell you something. When I go to hell, me and the devil are going to drink out of the same bottle. How do you think that's going to play out? Really? I've heard them say, well, I'll get right later when, when I'm older. Right now, I'm young, and I want to have all the fun, and I'll get saved at some point in time. No, you won't. You deceive yourself. You're going to push that thing and push that thing, and one of these days, there'll be no remedy for it. I've had them say, well, preacher, I know we need to get saved, but, you know, I just, got, I just don't have the right feeling about it. I, preacher, I know I got to get saved, but you know what? I want to live it first before I get saved. You fool. You fool, tonight thy soul shall be required of thee. Without remedy. Listen, man has a sin problem and only God has the remedy. His way, not yours. I meet people all my life that want to do through life their way. And their way, your way will mess your life up. Man will spend his whole life trying to get around the truth of God. He'll get educated. He'll get religion. He'll get a career. He'll make lots of money. He'll get fame. He'll get fortune. He'll get a wild lifestyle. He'll get into drugs. He'll join the Masons. He'll join the Shriners. He'll join the VFW. He'll join the Rotary. He'll join the future farmers of America. They'll join social clubs, garden clubs, ladies' auxiliaries, volunteer fire departments, motorcycle clubs. I mean, they will go through everything they can. And they'll join every organization and club that they can that seemingly does good for people, their fellow man. And through that, they'll deceive themselves that they're okay. Hey, when you're more committed to the Masons or your car club or your motorcycle club than you are to God's club, you got some problems. And they will come to the point where they have deceived themselves for so long, and then God, oh, the most terrible thing that God could ever do to any man is that allow you to go and live the lie you're living. And boy, you say, well, I don't believe God would ever. You're out of your mind. Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. God will give you the lie to believe if you reject his word and you want one. He says in Ezekiel 14, verse 1, Then came certain of the elders of Israel unto me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, These men, here we go, these men have set up their idols in their heart and have put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of at all by them? Therefore, speak unto them and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, every man of the house of Israel that setteth up his idols in his heart and putteth the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and cometh to the prophet, here it is, I, the Lord, will answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols. You want a lie to believe? God will give you one. You want to reject the truth and hold on to what you want to believe? In time, it'll become so real to you. God will allow that to to be in your life and take away any remedy that God has for you. Right there. Right there. You reject God's truth. And harden your heart and stiffen your neck to God's, uh, God's uh, truth. And God will give you an answer after the multitude of the lies that you have put into your heart. Listen, in America tonight, there is over 40, morning there was over 40 million people at least who have rejected the truth of God. And now they live their lives and they've gotten to the place where they believe that they're okay. 
and there's no remedy for them. Not because God won't save them. They have put the idols and stiffened their neck. Did you ever notice how down through history, how nations followed this principle and didn't even know they were doing it? I mean, you know that in every nation, the Oriental nations, European nations, and even in America, when a man went against his nation's laws and committed a capital offense worthy of death in Japan, in China, all, all the Oriental cultures, you know what they did? They cut off his head, neckline. In Europe, France, England, and Spain, all through Europe, they cut off his head, cracked him off at the neck through the guillotine. Why, in America, for the first 150 years, every time a guy committed a capital offense, they put him up on a scaffold, put a rope around his neck, and broke his neck. Around 1920, America switched to fried food, and then they went to the electric chair. (laughs) And we, we say it ourselves. Boy, I stuck my neck out on that one. Really? That's good and biblical. Wow, boy, you're going to get it in the neck. My neck's on the line, man. You bet it is. And I'm going to tell you right now, for a saved or an unsaved man, a hardened neck is no match for God's two-edged sword. He'll cut your head off. Now, two things I want to emphasize here. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we talked about dealing with rebellious children who robbed the family of God's blessing. And I want to just take a, make a statement here and, and kind of tie that together. That rebellion will begin uh, with a stiff neck and a hardened heart. That stiff neck will come from a, from a strong-willed child. You'll find that some kids, they grow up and they're, you know, their kids are just garden variety kid with garden variety problems and then every once in a while you'll find a kid and they're not hard to they're not hard to see uh they they got some they got a strong will and when a parent won't break that neck or that strong will uh i mean it should be done with by the time they're two and three years old you wait four five and six you're pushing it you go beyond that and you won't happen if you don't get it done at two to three or four to five god will break his neck when he's 18 or 19 or 20 See, it all goes back to the family, as we talked about. And that strong-willed child, it starts, you have to break that because what is a strong will here develops over here. Now, in the Bible, Christians are likened to oxen. I don't know if you knew that or not. And in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament times, they took an ox, two ox, and they yoked them together. That's a picture of two Christians. And they put a yoke on them, and then they plowed with them. And uh, here again, the incredible aspect of the Bible. You don't have baby oxen. Uh, You don't have an oxen that is born. An oxen starts out as a bull, and then he has to have an operation, and that operation transforms him into an ox. You don't have Christians born. You get born as a sinner, and then you have a Colossians chapter 2, an operation of God made without hands that makes you a Christian. So they're a perfect picture of a child of God. And in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 30, 
He says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and lean uh, of me, uh, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, that's a picture of what should be two Christians being yoked together in marriage and then plowing the field, Matthew 13, which is the world, plowing the fields for God. The Moravian missionaries were a great, 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 great missionary Bible-believing organization. They had a crest, and on that crest there was a sword, and then there was a plow, and there was an altar. And a motto underneath of it said, ready for either. And their motto was, we're either ready to be hitched to the plow and plow the fields for God, or we're ready to lay down our life as an altar on a sacrifice. And your will given over to God's will, and you plow for him. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, the importance of finding the right person in your life. It says that we are, as Christians, are not to be unweakly yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial, Old Testament name for the devil, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And it clearly shows you the importance of two people getting married that have to be equally yoked. By that I mean both saved. You know, back in the Old Testament, one more time, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10, I told you that the ass was a picture of an unsaved man and an ox is a picture of a Christian. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10, it's a violation of the law to plow and put in yoke an ox and an ass because it's a picture of somebody being unequally yoked in the ministry. It's incredible. Now, that's why you need to be careful who you marry. The wrong partner, one who is unsaved or saved and absolutely worthless, will make you unequally yoked. You will will bow your neck to the things of God, and they will not, and they'll stiffen their neck to the things of God. And uh, as the Bible says, how can two walk together except you be agreed? You'll fight all of your life over the things of God. You'll go to church by yourself. You'll, you'll, You'll raise your kids by yourself. You'll do everything because you know what? They have absolutely no care. And for in most cases, there's no remedy for that. I mean, I'm just telling you, they will stiffen their neck to the things of God. And you need to know this. A stiff neck will always be a direct result of a hardened heart. And a hardened heart and a stiffened neck will always lead to a rebellious spirit, which is against authority. And a Christian wipes it out of their lives by two ways. One, dealing with a strong-willed child because their seeds of rebellion are found in their strong will. And if it, 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 most people think it's cute. It won't be cute when they're 18, 19, or 20. You have to break it now, dealing with a strong-willed child, because rebellion with that will be the seeds of rebellion in that. And then, of course, yoking up to the right person. And when you don't, after many reproofs, there'll be no remedy. There'll be no remedy. You have deceived yourself right into the lake of fire. You have put all the things in your life that look good. You have cleaned up your life. You've done a lot of good things, but you have rejected the only issue and the only problem, the thing that will solve your problem, and that is God's remedy. 
There isn't one thing you can do in your life to get to heaven or fix your problems if you are saved without coming back to God's remedy. And man, all through his life in the history of man, has done everything that he can do to push God as far away as he can, to reject the truth as long as he can, to come to the point where he just does everything in his heart that follows him. Like that little guy over there. He looks around at what he has. He's not satisfied with that because he's not satisfied with the things of God. His world is about possessions. His world is about things. His world is about lots of money, lots of possessions. And so he focuses on that, and then he falls and deceives himself that he thinks, if I just have this, I'll be satisfied. If I just have this, I'll be satisfied. Every new car you buy, you're satisfied till the new car smell is gone, and then you want another one. You drive it off the lot, two years later, you got some dings and some dings all over the thing there, new tires on it, brakes are worn, and you know what? It doesn't have that. You want, you got to have something in life that never changes. You got to have something in life that doesn't get old. You got to have something in life that doesn't wear out. You got to have something in life that all the barns of this world filled with all the fun things of life, you got to have something better than that. And we deceive ourselves so much and so long to the point where we actually now can't get to the truth of God. We're Ezekiel 14. God has given us the light of belief. He's turned us over to a reprobate mind or we have seared our conscience toward God for so long that we just can't get there. In the silent midnight watches, hark thy bosom's door, Someone knocking, 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 knocking evermore. Say not, tis our pulse beating, for it is our heart of sin. And thy Savior crying, soul arise and let me in. Death comes on with reckless footsteps to palace, home, or hut. Think you death will tarry knocking when your door is shut? Jesus standing, waiting, but your sinful heart stands fast. Grieved away, your Savior leaveth. Death comes in at last. Then you will be standing, waiting, begging Christ to let you in, beating at the gate of heaven, covered with your sin. God forbid, you guilty sinner, heaven is not your lot. Jesus waited long to know thee, but now he knows thee not. Every head bowed and every eye closed. 